Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week marks the beginning of our new sermon series titled Navigating a Post-Christian Culture. In the first sermon of the series, Pastor Rob shares the first tip Peter gives in navigating a different culture, the gigantic nature of the good news. Let's listen now. Let's pray together. God, in your presence today, we confess to you that we regularly face dilemmas in life, times when we just don't know exactly what to do. We yearn, God, for your guidance. We want to know your will. And so, God, we pray today that you would speak and teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, how do we navigate a culture that is changing quickly? Now, bluntly, there are some things that don't seem to change. Take Stockbridge, Massachusetts, for instance. I went there a couple of years ago because there's a museum there for Norman Rockwell, one of my favorite artists, and I saw a painting there, Home for Christmas. Rockwell painted it in 1967, and it's a painting that depicts the downtown of Stockbridge at Christmas. After visiting the museum, and we bought a puzzle with the Home for Christmas painting on it, we thought, well, you know, we're, we're getting kind of hungry. It'd be good to go into downtown for lunch. And the thought occurred to me, and I said it out loud as we were heading to the downtown, I wonder if we'll even recognize the downtown after all these years. And on cue, we turned a corner, pulled into the downtown, and the answer is, oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing has changed in downtown Stockbridge since 1967. Some things don't change, but almost everything else in our culture is changing. We've changed from a Christian culture to a post-Christian culture. Studies indicate that back in the 1970s, when asked, roughly 90% of the people living in the United States would answer that they had at least a nominal type of Christian faith. And so, at that time in history, Christian faith and Christian values would shape our culture to a large degree. That means that, that the, the language, the beliefs, the values, the customs, the behaviors in this country were to some degree or another shaped by Christian values. But all of that is changing. In fact, since the Enlightenment across Western civilization, Christian values have shaped the culture less and less. Those changes are accelerating in our culture right now. The Pew Research Center has done a study that indicates that if the trend lines away from Christian faith and toward non-religion continue, sometime in the next 50 years, sooner or later, Christianity will become a minority faith, even nominal Christianity will slip below 50% in this culture, and those who profess to have no religious faith will constitute more than 50% of our culture. That's what it means that we're living in a post-Christian 
culture. Now, the truth of the matter is, at times, we can feel lost in a post-Christian culture. If you grew up in a Christian culture, living in a post-Christian culture can feel a bit disorienting. You look around at the world around you, and it just doesn't make sense, and you see people hurting themselves. If you have come to faith recently or are still considering Christian faith, then the distance, the gap, the change between the culture you grew up in and the culture you are considering or adopting is massive. You recognize that when you become a Christian, it means that everything is going to change. The way that you speak, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your money, all of that is going to change. Because, you see, Christian values, Christian culture is different from the culture of the world around us. Christians behave and believe differently from the world around us. And at a bare minimum, it can be frustrating and disorienting. So what are we going to do? Sometimes we get angry. We get angry about the way that the culture is changing, and and we want to fight Sometimes the pressure to conform is so great that we just want to fit in. And sometimes we give up on it all. And we look at ourselves as being like a castle with a moat of protection around us and a drawbridge that has been down that we can access the culture from. And we decide, nope, instead, I'm going to pull up the drawbridge and I'm going to live inside my castle and I'm going to pretend that the world outside is not happening. How are we going to navigate a post-Christian culture? Well, it turns out that in the New Testament, The people of the New Testament were living in a non-Christian culture. They were Christians with Christian values, beliefs, and behaviors, living in a culture that actively and passively fought against them. So the people of the New Testament understand our dilemma. 1 Peter is a letter written to people experiencing exactly what we are experiencing and trying to help them understand what to do. And so we turn to the book of 1 Peter today to try to understand how to navigate a post-Christian culture. Now, we learn a great deal as we read the first verses of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we discover that we have a letter, we learn who the author is, and we learn who the recipients are. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 reads, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, if you don't have your Bibles out, I would actually encourage you to get them out because we're going to come back to that in just a bit. Whatever form your Bible takes, don't just rely on the screens today. We, we discover that the author of this letter, though, is Peter. We know Peter. 
Peter is one of Jesus' 12 original disciples, one of the ones he designated as an apostle. We know Peter and we like Peter because Peter is at once bold and human and relatable. On one occasion, Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples went, ah, I don't know, so maybe this, maybe that. Jesus, trying to clear up the confusion, says, okay, but who do you say I am? And that's the moment when Peter stepped forward. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus loves Peter in that moment, and we love Peter in that moment. And Jesus says, you are the rock, and I will build my church on you. We love that about Peter. But then in the next breath, Jesus said, I am going to be crucified. I'm going to die and rise again. And Peter says, uh, no. To which Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. In the very next breath, after being named the rock on which the church will be built, Jesus ends up calling Peter Satan. He is so clear, so bold, such a good leader, and yet so human, so flawed, and so relatable at the same time. We know Peter. Peter, as it turns out, knows himself. Because actually, Peter was born Simon, son of Jonah or of John. And it was on that day when Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am, that Jesus changed his name. He was no longer to be known as Simon. Now he was to be known as the rock. And the word rock in the language that Jesus and his disciples almost certainly spoke was Cephas. And so among Jesus' followers and in Galilee and Judea, Peter was known as Cephas. But when the apostle began to do ministry in the broader world, the people in the broader world spoke the Greek language and read Greek, and the rock in Greek is Peter. And so the man born Simon was no longer called Simon. The man nicknamed Cephas no longer went by that name he used at home. He was now Peter, the rock, the apostle sent by Jesus Christ to the church at large to speak on behalf of Jesus. And that brings us to an important truth that we need to deal with today, and that is that Peter can speak authoritatively for and about Jesus. Peter can speak authoritatively for and about Jesus, because Peter was there for all of it. Peter was there for Jesus' teachings and for his miracles. Peter was there when Jesus was arrested. He was there when Jesus was resurrected. He was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. Peter was there when the Holy Spirit came down and the church was born. Peter himself led and taught and worked miracles. Peter knew Jesus and spoke on behalf of Jesus. And that's very critically important for us to recognize today. We know that all Scripture is true, it is breathed, it is inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is perfect, and it teaches us everything that we need to know. And on top of that, here we have a letter from the Apostle Peter. He knew what it was like to live in and to navigate a culture that is hostile to Christians. And he knew Jesus. He knew what Jesus said, what Jesus had done, how Jesus had responded. It's Peter. Peter is the one 
who is writing to the church to tell us how to navigate living in a world that's hostile to us. Peter can speak authoritatively for and about Jesus, and we get to study his words together. This is the word of God to us. We learn even more as we ask, though, who first read 1 Peter. Peter talks about the recipients being from five different regions of Asia Minor. You're going to see a map, and in this map, you're going to see the rough outline of the region that Peter was writing to. Actually, those, those regions in Asia Minor are probably a little larger than what Peter was writing to back in those days. Boundaries and, and provinces were very complicated, but he wrote to an area that's roughly a thousand miles from east to west, roughly 350 miles from north to south. It's just a little bit smaller than the territory of California right now. In it, we're living four to eight million people, and this area was important to the Romans. The, the Romans had established military control over it, and important commercial routes ran through it, and they tried to integrate these areas into the Roman Empire. But there were sparsely, widely scattered settlements. They were peoples from multiple nationalities with different languages and customs. Peter was writing to Christ followers in this area. He was writing to people he called exiles. Why did he call them exiles? Were they exiles because of the diaspora? You see, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read that Peter is writing to the exiles of the diaspora or of the dispersion. That's a title used for any Jews who were living beyond the boundaries of the Holy Land. And there were one million Jews living in Asia Minor in the first century. They had been resettled there in the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament forcibly, and they lived there now. Had some of them become followers of Jesus, and was Peter writing to them? Well, that would make them exiles. Or were the people that Peter was writing to exiles because they were colonists? You see, I told you that the Romans were trying to establish control of this region and integrate it into their empire, but the people of this area were fiercely independent, and in order to assert control, Rome created colonies. Sometimes Rome built cities from the ground up. Other times they refounded and augmented cities and towns that already existed. Every time Rome established a colony, Rome would send colonists in to populate that colony. Sometimes the colonists went because they saw an opportunity to live a better life. And sometimes the colonists were sent forcibly to another area because they were troublemakers for Rome back home. Many colonists came from Rome itself. But whenever colonists went into a region, particularly to one like Asia Minor, they didn't have the language, the beliefs, and the behaviors of the people around them. They were always considered outsiders. And so, were they exiles because they were colonists? Why ever they were exiles, Peter calls them, interestingly, elect exiles. 
elect exiles. In fact, the term that he uses, elect, everywhere else pretty much is translated as chosen. These exiles are chosen. Now, they may be rejected by the people around them, but Peter says, you are chosen. You are chosen by God. You are God's chosen people. These are Christians. And whatever their previous status was when they became Christians, they adopted new beliefs and new behaviors that would have set them even further apart from the people around them. But in Jesus Christ, they knew who they were. They were God's chosen people. But this brings up an important point for us to understand today, and that is Christians are all strangers living in a foreign land. We Christians are all strangers living in a foreign land. You see, we're the settlers in Asia Minor, exiles because of the diaspora or because they were colonists. We don't know. All we can say for certain is that they were outsiders within their own culture. And we can say for certain that being Christians gave them different beliefs, values, and behaviors that set them apart even further. Peter is writing to them. But in their experience, we learn something critically important about ourselves. Their experience became a metaphor for being a disciple of Jesus. Just as they were chosen outsiders, we too are all elect exiles. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, living in the kingdoms of the world. We are pilgrims, making our way through life from the place where we were born to our heart's true home. We are all strangers living in a foreign land. And that's why the culture around us is always, always, always going to fit us poorly. Now, in addition, what we're going to find is that Peter is clarifying our source of hope as strangers living in a foreign land. Peter talks about this source of hope as we continue in verses 3 through 5. I'm going to read them for you, but you're going to want your text close by, and you're going to want to read this for yourself, and we're going to refer back to verses 1 and 2 again. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, we read, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ.'" According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wow. What we learn here is that our hope comes from God's work. And actually, to understand just how much Peter says our hope is coming from God's work, we have to go back to verses 1 and 2, because we find in verses 1 and 2 that, that we are chosen according to God's foreknowledge. We are sanctified through the work of God's Holy Spirit. We are made ready to obey Jesus Christ, and we're sprinkled in the blood of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we get grace, that is the gospel, and we get peace, that is the gospel working itself out in our lives. And that's what we've already learned 
about the work of God. Now, in verses 3 and following, we discover that all of this happened according to God's mercy. In his mercy, that's his character. God, in his merciful character, does not give us the penalty that we would be due otherwise. Instead, we are born again, which is an action that can only happen by God's work. And this born-again experience that we have brings us to a hope that's living, not a hope that's dead, not a hope that's passive, a hope that is living, alive, and active. And that hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, something that God himself only could do, a resurrection that is now available to us. Again, the work of God, our hope comes from the work of God, but our hope is also being kept safe for us. You see, Peter says that the hope that we have, this living hope, is an inheritance. It is not something that we have fully now. And he says this inheritance, this thing that you do not have fully now, but that is coming to you, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Well, that's an odd set of words for him to use because there's nothing in this world that is imperishable, undefiled, or unfading. Everything in this world is perishing, getting defiled, and fading. That's the nature of life on earth. And he says that's not the case with your inheritance. So our inheritance cannot be on earth. He says this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading is instead being kept in heaven And you yourselves are being guarded for it. God is guarding your lives. And he says that that hope that is the work of God and is being kept safe is also being sustained. And it's being sustained through faith. Because as God guards us for that inheritance that we have coming in the future, he's doing it by giving us faith. And faith is the ability, as we've been studying over the past few weeks, to agree with the gospel, to trust in Jesus, to obey Christ, to live in a new relationship with God, to engage in the work that God has given us to do, and to hold fast and never give up. Peter says that faith is being given to you, and you live in that faith because you must not, you should not, you never will give up. Do not give up up. Because this thing that we are hoping for is something that we are waiting for. Our hope flows from the gigantic nature of the good news. Hope flows from the gigantic nature of the good news. You see, the the good news is so big that it always surprises us. Now, Back in verse 2, if you were paying careful attention, you would see that we were chosen by God according to his foreknowledge, meaning that God chose us before the creation of the cosmos. Now, some of you that are theologically inclined are hearing predestination all over that. Just set that aside for a second. That's not the point. The point is that God chose to save us beforehand, before time began back in what for us is the distant past. Verses 11 and 12 tell us that this salvation that we have is something the prophets could see. They could see it coming. It was underway. 
and they longed to look more deeply and to know more about it. Peter says this salvation that was in process that was coming is something that angels long to see and understand. They're peering in, looking in, ready for what would happen. If you've already become a follower of Jesus, you look at your salvation in some ways as an event in your past. You got saved in the past when you were redeemed, forgiven, and adopted as a son or daughter of God. But Peter says it's bigger. It's bigger still. Not only did it start before time, not only did it stretch throughout the past, not only is it in your past, but Peter says it's in your present. You are being saved. You are being sanctified. God has put his Holy Spirit in you. You are being kept and guarded and sanctified even now. You are being saved. And he says, you are going to be saved in the future. There is something ahead of you. Glory and resurrection and heaven is ahead of you. There is something future and beyond. And the gigantic nature of the good news, it turns out, is at least that salvation stretches from before time began to after time will be over. The gigantic nature of the good news always, always surprises us. And our hope flows from the certainty, from the bigness, from the gigantic nature of the good news. That's where our hope comes from. Peter goes on to propose that hope points us homeward as we navigate a foreign land. Hope points us forward. And in verses 6 through 9, Peter acknowledges the truth that we know is coming, that the elect exiles faced trouble. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may not be found to result, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining to the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Amen. The elect exiles face troubles that we might very well ourselves recognize. In the time when Peter wrote persecution had not become across the Roman Empire what it would one day. A few people had died, and a few more people would die. But the massive martyrdoms that were to come were still in the future. But in Peter's day, being out of sync with the culture around them had become a problem. People would lose jobs, contracts, business opportunities. Difficulty would arise in the workplace with local authorities, with friends. Trouble broke out 
as wars broke out within families. People would be arrested. There would be pressure to change your mind, to change your belief, to change your behaviors. People would be exiled and sent to other places because they were just too much trouble. There were riots in neighborhoods. And these kinds of troubles start to feel much more familiar to us. Anyone ever gotten into an argument over Thanksgiving dinner about Jesus? Peter says that glory waits on the other side of trouble. Peter says that when we face trouble, there is glory waiting. When we face trouble and we endure, our faith is proven genuine. When we face trouble and we endure, we bring glory to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we face trouble and endure, Peter says, Glory is waiting for you too because you will be resurrected. You will be glorified. You will be changed. You will spend eternity in the presence of God. You will be glorified. Peter says trouble is here and now and glory is there and then. Trouble comes before glory. And the frank truth is that we are all going to face trouble because we are followers of Jesus. Now, I don't mean the trouble that somebody's going to cut you off in the parking lot at the grocery store later today. That's going to happen too. The trouble I'm talking about is the kind that the people of the first century were beginning to face. We as Christians have different beliefs and behaviors from the culture around us, and those differences are going to produce troubles At times, we, like the people of the first century, are going to be reviled. We are going to be pressured. We are going to be sanctioned. People want us to conform. We are going to see difficulty at work. We are going to see difficulty in the public spaces. We're going to see difficulty with friends. We are going to see difficulty with family members. When you are a Christ follower, you have a different culture, a different set of values, different beliefs, and different behaviors, and different leads to trouble. When we live as disciples of Jesus Christ, with the beliefs and behaviors of disciples of Jesus Christ, we're going to face trouble. So the question becomes, how will we navigate living in a post-Christian world? Will we get angry? Will we become cynical and jaded? Will we fight? Will we give up? Or will we have hope? Will we cling to faith? Will we stay on mission with Jesus Christ? How will we navigate a post-Christian culture?
May hope point us homeward as we navigate a post-Christian culture. Hope, you see, keeps us going because we recognize that we have been gripped by the gigantic nature of the good news. God at work in our lives, he has saved us and we can keep going. Hope keeps us engaged because God, who is big enough to save us, is God who is big enough to save the people in the world. He is still at work in the world, and he calls us to be on mission with him, joining him and storming the gates of hell right up until the end. And hope reminds us of our true home. We are not citizens of the kingdoms of this world. We are citizens of the eternal kingdom of God. That's our home. That's where we're going. May hope point us homeward as we navigate a post-Christian world. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.